First of all, having the imagination to think out of the box. Second is to work with people that are smarter than you are and to treat them well. Third is to maintain your focus and not deviate when things get a little rocky. I think that's what makes a good leader. Three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to the Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Kevin Edwards. And across the screen from me today, we have Ron Bruden, the founder and chairman of Education for Employment, the leading nonprofit that trains youth and links them to jobs across the Middle East and Northern Africa. Ron, thanks for being with us today. Pleasure, Kevin. Happy to be here. So the Middle East, uh, this is an area that's that I really don't know much about, but I do know that um, you know, for the kids and, and people my age in this area, a time where they, instead of like growing up with a, a firm education and, and nice nurturing and developing their brains, it's kind of interrupted by conflict and violence. And some people are forced to marry early and, and there's a lot of war. Uh, for this region, uh, the Middle East and Northern Africa, Ron, why did you decide to start here and, and start your nonprofit in this location? Well, sadly enough, it was a result of what happened on 9-11. Mm-hmm. My eldest daughter was by the World Trade Center when it went down. And at the age of 23, she was watching people jumping out of buildings. Mm-hmm. Probably the most traumatic moment of her life. And so afterwards, we spent a lot of time talking about why this happened, what motivated these people to do this, and what could happen in the future to prevent acts like this from occurring. And uh, I had spent a lot of time in Ireland, in Belfast, on behalf of a pharmaceutical company I built about 20 some odd years ago. And I saw how the religious factions were at each other's throat and how quickly that ended when people had jobs and opportunity. Mm. When I first started going to Ireland, it was very clear that I couldn't deal with one group and deal with the second. It was either or. And then in the late 1990s, there was a shift, and people weren't as concerned about that, and all the killings basically stopped. And my, my research determined that it was because of the economy growing, because people had opportunities, and people were now having families and traveling and buying cars and homes. And they weren't interested in doing bad to each other and losing what they had. They had a lot to lose. Mm. I took that analogy and said, you know, if the Middle East could have the same economic opportunity, the same economic revival, I think we have the same outcome. Mm. So when you went into the Middle East originally, what what was your mindset and what did you learn from your first, you know, when you first uh, took steps on the ground there? What did you see and what did you realize? Well, before I went into the Middle East, I put together a group of really smart advisors, advisors people who knew this area much better than I did, like great mm. credentials, former prime minister of Pakistan, uh, woman, uh, Alan Lapson around the Stimson Foundation, Moeen Qureshi, uh, Mokhtar Lamani, who's the ambassador to the UN for the Organization of Islamic Conference, uh, brought in the Brookings Institution to study the situation and figure out what could be done and what was needed. They didn't want to go off have cock and go to the Middle East unless I had my ducks in order. Mm. We learned, this is before I actually make my first trip, that in the region, the unemployment was largely due to the fact that the system is broken. Mm. High school graduates have better job opportunities than college grads. And so what's happened is you go to four more years of school and you come out less qualified than you were on day one. Mm. Yeah. It's because of things that are being taught are not relevant to the labor market. Right. Yeah. So we came upon a, a few conclusions. One is we would build standalone foundations. And these foundations would figure out what was needed on the ground in terms of training and job placements. Hmm. And then we do specific training for jobs in reaction to what the labor market needed. 
that hadn't been done. And it was also locally run and locally operated. So in each of the nine countries that are operating, we have a local chair, local board, local staff. You don't see Ron Bruders there. You see the local individuals who work for this operation. And it appears to be a standalone. It's not. It's part of a network, which quite frankly makes it more powerful. But in the country, it is a local foundation with all the benefits of being locally owned and operated. Hmm. So just to sum that up, Ron, and, and this is what I've found out too through a couple of interviews is, is you're saying people with a high school education or no education have, or, or I guess more employed than people with a college education in these regions. So the jobs or I guess the, the minors, the majors, the people that things are studying in these areas, there's no labor market for. So therefore they're forced to either go somewhere else or go back to a job that you know, you could get straight out of high school or something like that. Is that a fair assumption or a fair well, synopsis? Well, do nothing or live at home with your parents. Or live at home and have the late adult without the shame of not being on your own, not being able to marry, not being able to have a social life. Mm. And so often there's no opportunity, period. Sometimes mm. they getting a lesser job, getting no job. Mm. So or I see... The home economy and making nickels and dimes still not enabling you to marry and have a family. So I, I see a, a picture of a chef behind you. I see a, a woman holding up a sign that says inspiring. What, is, what are some of the um, job opportunities that education and for employment focuses on or how it started and how it uh, varies uh, for, for different cultures in, in that region? We, in the, through the nine countries, have 14 different curriculum that we teach. Hmm. And this is reacting to what the labor market needs. So work in hospitality, work in IT. Uh, we have a program for high school dropouts, for instance, that takes these dropouts, teaches them how to fix air conditioners or repair cars or do carpentry. Mm. Uh, we do a lot in IT because that's the future. And so we, these employers tell us what their needs are and we fill their needs. Mm. Probably the most powerful curriculum that we teach is soft skills, work skills. We built this with Aurora Hill from day one and it teaches youth how to behave in the labor market, how to write a resume, interview, critical thinking, leadership, team building, uh, what to say, what not to say, what to wear, how to behave with your coworker, time management, ethics. And they come to the labor market prepared to work. And so it's a dramatic change in their attitude. But they really get out of this self-confidence. Mm. You see these youth before they get into the program, you meet them, you shake their hand, they look down on the ground, they don't engage in a conversation. You meet them afterwards and you think they went to West Point. Wow. That's, that's, I mean, that's impact right there firsthand. I mean, you know, we, we interview a lot of, uh, social enterprises and for-profits that, you know, a, a lot of investors say, you know, the only way long-term is to solve this with a for-profit. Why'd you decide to start a nonprofit in this area to solve this need? Because we wanted to go after the youth that were most marginalized. The economics of dealing with them were not as strong as going and cherry picking mm. the for-profit would be doing. If you're a for-profit, Obviously, you want to pick those populations that give you the biggest bang for the buck. Mm. Populations that we pick take more work and more effort and more cost to get them up to speed, and that's what we wanted to do. Mm. So, where does that add to that? We are now building for profits underneath our not for profit because the training that we're doing has value, and we're being asked by employers in the region to do that training for their existing employers, employees. And so we started doing that in Morocco and Tunisia, and I, I hope and expect they'll expand throughout the region. Wow, okay. That will fuel the not-for-profit as well as creating additional better trained individuals through the for-profit. Hmm. 
And, and Ron, how, how important have uh, cross-sector partnerships been for your organization, working with local government uh, government officials? What have you ran into, and uh, what are some obstacles that you've had to overcome in these uh, participating countries and areas? Because we're local, we're able to get some, we're able to surmount many of the hurdles that we couldn't do otherwise. For instance, in Egypt, it's difficult to get foreign funds into the local country, into the local NGOs, because it has to go through the Ministry of Social Solidarity. We're able to do that because we're a local foundation, we're respected, we're liked in the region, and the powers that be know of us and respect the work we do. If we had come in as an American foundation, this is just a branch, we never have. And because we're local, we have local relationships through our board with employers. So we want to know what opportunities are out there. Our board goes out and speaks to their friends at the, at the country club, wherever, saying, okay, where where do you need help? Where can we be of assistance here? Mm-hmm. And therefore, when we train for a job, we know ahead of time what the outcome is going to be. Okay. So maybe that would tie right into this question then. And I, I kind of asked earlier, but how does this, I guess if you're using the same approach, how does this vary across this this MENA region? Um, I mean, are, are there different labor markets in these different regions or is there, are you finding things are, are a little, you know, kind of common? Depends on what the country needs at that point in time. Mm, okay. Uh, in the Gulf, we're doing work in the oil industry. Um, in Jordan, hospitality seems to be an area we're focused on extensively. Uh, in Gaza, we're doing IT and construction. Also based, most of these programs are using soft skills as the basis and then going beyond that. Hmm. In Egypt, uh, we're training bankers. I was at a graduation a number of years ago where we trained uh, bankers on a very basic level. We taught them work skills. We taught them to think out of the box. And at their graduation, these youth came up with four ideas to help the bank make more money. Blew everybody away. Who expected these youth, these kids who had no background to have the imagination to come up with four new ideas to tell the bank, which was a major bank, like Misser, how to make more money, they did. Mm. And these graduates have gone on to do major things with their lives because they have, in addition to these skills, they have the soft skills. And so therefore, they do well in the workplace. Mm. Uh, a big uh, untapped market in this uh, area, from my experience and from speaking with many people or working in this region, uh, is female employment uh, I watched a video a really inspiring video and it might have been even the, the woman right behind you uh, that started her own company uh, from from your education uh, in, in this um, not-for-profit uh, what have you seen in terms of your impact on on female employment in these regions and could you provide us maybe in our audience an example of how your framework has helped uh, a female entrepreneur well, we, uh, we work primarily with females wherever we can. 56% of our graduates are women. Oh, well. And the largest and women have the highest level of unemployment in the region. And so we focus on the women, we train them, and they then become leaders of their household and changes the dynamic tremendously. There's huge social impact. Mm. That's incredible, Ron. So... Uh, it- as, you know, as I'm hearing these uh, the sirens in the background, I'm just going to go back to what you said the first thing. You know, you started this because of, of 9/11 and, and your daughter's uh, eyewitness of, of that um, you know reckoning. 
this is a pretty important topic. And so you think, you know, you can come in here and, and teach these soft skills, get, you know, gain these people, you know, these, you know, especially as young adults confidence uh, to then develop their own career and make, you know, hopefully, you know, positive decisions in their life. You know, in, in this region, I, I was looking it up, uh, there's, you know, there's 70 million displaced in this region right now, many refugees in this region, half of those people are underage. Uh, you know, what other solutions are out there? And, and is this too big of a problem to take on right now? I mean, we're, we're allocating. There's no alternative. Yeah. You have to take it on. It's not going away. These people aren't disappearing. They're not going to magically get jobs. Mm. For instance, in Jordan, we're training Syrian refugees in various job skills. When they do get back, they'll have the opportunity to have a job. Mm. We need to give them hope. We need to give them a future. And maybe for our listeners, especially I'm actually really curious. Have you been to a refugee camp, and what's it what's it really like there? And then how, you know, how, how do you help someone uh, that that's in a situation like that? How do you get them started? I've been to refugee camps. Yes, they're they're tragic. Mm. You know, it's one thing to visit, another thing I get to leave. Mm. People don't get to leave. Right. And it's it's not a good existence. You know, they're living day to day on handouts. Mm. They're in the future. They have jobs. But we are working with them to give them jobs, to give them a future, to give them employment, to get them out of the refugee camp. Uh, one of the problems of uh, being a, a refugee is um, not having an identity uh, in, in, a, in a country, moving away, not being able to establish an identity, not being able to take out a loan, get credit. A lot of problems come with this. What are some of the tech solutions or um, any solutions that you've seen um, that you've been able to apply, maybe this framework or just that you're aware of that's that's been working? There's no one easy solution. And obviously, if you teach them coding skills and skills that are internationally applicable, you have a skill that they can use anywhere and take with them. Mm. It's one of the areas that we've been focusing on is coding skills, computer skills, app skills, because these are can be done anywhere in the world. Mm. And, and Ron, you said one of the first things, uh, you brought on a lot of clients and, or a lot of advisors in this area that knew the area better than you. Um, do you use any resources from the United States or around the world that can help uh, educate people to tell them, you know, what is coming? You know, if I'm, you know, I think a good case study was if I'm working in Apple supply chain in Tunisia, uh, you know, I, I can go in and, and let these students know exactly what I'm seeing and, and where there are opportunities in this space so the, the job market or the, the job training can change. Are you working or using any outside resources uh, to kind of bring in to uh, your framework? The resource that we rely on, which is working well, is the resource in each country. Mm. Thus, we have a local board and a local group, a local staff. They figure out where the jobs are. Mm. And they come back and teach us and we take the knowledge they've given us and then we build curriculum to match. Mm. Okay, okay. Well, Ron, so you also explained to us earlier on the show that uh, you, you were working in, was it Belfast or Bel- Belmont, Belfast in Ireland? Belfast, Ireland, Northern Ireland. Yes. Is that? Okay. I was, I'm watching the Peaky Blinders right now. I don't know if that's in that same area, but I think it is. Um, you know, you mentioned you were, you were working for this. What, what's, the, what's the main difference for you working from this job and now taking on this, uh, this, this giant problem that's maybe a little bit more impactful? Well, the biggest difference is I come from the for-profit world to the not-for-profit world. Mm. And the rules of engagement are different just because it's a not-for-profit entity. So you rely more on goodwill than greed. Mm. And so we have people working for us, dedicated to what we do, making a fraction of what they're making for the real world because they believe in the work. Mm. So 
So it's it's a different whole different parameters. You know, we have staff that, that is here because they want to be here. We don't hold them because we're paying them more than anybody else would. Mm. I suspect a lot of our class, a lot of our staff that don't work in a for-profit and make more money and have an easier time, but they believe in our work and they work for us. We have about 13 staff in the U.S. and over 100 in the region. Mm. These are dedicated people. They're at it seven days a week. Their work ethic is phenomenal. Have you found that these staff members, uh, you know, they're they're more aligned with this company? They have a similar background, and you say they work in seven days a week. They're some of the best workers you ever had. You know, what what do you think is the the main contributor to that? Well, they believe in what we're doing. They want to be. They want to have some positive influence. Mm-hmm. Motivated less by the almighty dollar and more by get their life and seeing what they can do to make a difference. A different kind of employee. Do you believe? Oh, sorry about that. Continue. No, they, they're dedicated. They care. I've, I've built several companies in the real estate business, pharmaceutical, oil and gas. And I've had loyal, hardworking employees, but quite frankly, it's all monetary-based. Mm. And if I couldn't compete and put more shekels in their pocket than they could get elsewhere, they're gone. Mm. This is different. These people really care. They really are engaged. And this is their passion. It's my passion. I'm engaged doing this. I've worked harder at this than I've done than anything else I've done just doesn't give me the space not yeah I, I can definitely relate to that Ron because I feel like a lot of the for-profits we interview are, are very similar as well uh, with their intent uh, to, to contribute to impact uh, I was reading a letter recently from Larry Fink and I know I know I'm gonna get these wrong these numbers wrong but it was saying it was like 63 percent of uh, Millennials believe that uh, business like the the main purpose of business should be used to have an impact versus create you know maximize shareholder value, which is a big shift uh, mm-hmm. in this change. Do you believe that uh, you can also find meaning in a for profit world that can create that same you know employee dedication as well? And where have you seen that? Uh, yes, you can. But obviously, um, the basis though is money. The basis is making a profit. I built a company 20 years ago that cleaned up environmentally tainted properties. Mm. We were the largest company buying brownfields, redeveloping them. It was a social good. Quite frankly, I wasn't focused on the social good. It was nice that we were doing it. I was happy to do it. At the end of the day, we were making money at it. Mm. That's what drew me to it, and that's why we did it. So are the metrics for you, then, if it's not monetary-based, are the metrics for you uh, employment? Uh, is it, well, is my it- profit. Is my grand? How many of you graduate? Three weeks ago, we had a hundred thousand graduates. Oh wow! Okay. To me, it was an amazing number. This year, we'll train another twenty-four thousand. And to me, our profit is our growth. Mm. Students that leave our program and get into the real world. Mm. Ron, you mentioned that. I believe you said you were an ambassador for the United Nations or you brought on an ambassador for the United Nations. Uh, and this is very important to us because uh, as a signatory of the UN Global Compact, uh, we structure our content around the 17 sustainable developmental goals. Uh, mm-hmm. how, interconne- how interconnected are these goals uh, in this region specifically? How, how much does education affect employment? Um, and how much does you know something like no hunger affect education? Well, they're all necessary. And quite frankly, um, some of the programs, we provide food for our, for our students because they're not eating, they're not learning. And it's a complicated situation as to where we draw the line of what we do and what we don't do. Mm. 
But if you know there are multi there are multiple factors that determine whether this particular youth is going to be able to succeed, it's more than our local economics, et cetera. You know, some of the like we're doing very well in Morocco because the economy in Morocco is better than some of the other countries we're operating. Hmm. A little more challenging. Tunisia, for instance, the GDP has been decreasing every year. We're doing okay there. We're doing well under the circumstances, but we do better in the more robust economy. And have you ever had to turn down a local community from working in or starting in and say, hey, man, that's that's just way too much work? It's not a matter of work. It's can we get buy-in? I think if we can get buy-in, we can make it work. If we have local people that you know, believe in what we're doing that are making it happen, then we can succeed. They're willing to put their time, effort, and resources behind it. It's never too hard. Like we went into Yemen seven, eight years ago. Yemen seemed like a really difficult place to be, but why did we go? I went out there several times and we found that there were Yemeni women and men that wanted this to happen, that were devoted to make it happen, were prepared to put in money, a time and effort. And we're still operating in Yemen today with all that's going on. The foundation continues. We're training mostly nurses, but it's working. Hmm. So to me, it's not how difficult it is, but it's do you have enough local buy-in? Do you have a group that can work together cohesively and make that happen? Like we're trying to go into Lebanon, for instance. Mm-hmm. And today we have not put together a group of leaders to run a local foundation to make that happen. When we do, you'll be in Lebanon, period. Ron, in, in terms of funding, uh, have you seen a shift in, in funding for uh, nonprofits in this region, such as an increase in impact investing uh, or an overall shift in um, just maybe allocating funds to even in for-profits in this area as well? They're taking on an intentional goal. Well, um, it's funny you mentioned that. We are moving in the direction of using impact investors. We've never done so before, but we are figuring out how to do it. And my ha- my hope expectation is a year from now, we'll be receiving a lot of impact money, and that'll be a re- an engine for growth. Hmm. Well, let's hope so, uh, because it seems like you're, you're doing a lot of work. Uh, so again, refresh me. How long have you been doing this for, and, and what's the overall impact, if you have any metrics on it, that you've uh, your, your organization has been able to create? We had our first graduating class in June of 2006. I took this on as a full-time endeavor for me rather than sitting back about 16 years ago. Mm. I gave up control of my real estate company, sold a lot of other assets off, and this is what I do every day. Mm. And the the metrics that we're most focused on is how much impact, how many youth we bring into our program, what kind of jobs they get, how long they keep them, whether they're happy, whether their employers are happy. That's how we judge what we're doing. And can shift gears if it's not working well. Ron, how does uh, leadership impact uh, your industry, your organizations, your objectives uh, in these regions, such as global politics, uh, war, conflict, things like that? <laughs> That's a tough one, Kevin. Um, obviously, the, you know, his situation on the ground has huge impact on what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, good news we didn't go into Syria because if we'd gone into Syria, we probably wouldn't be in Syria anymore. Mm. It amazes me that we're still operating in Yemen, but we have a real good group and a good nucleus of people who mm. want to make it happen. It's working. And we have leadership in these countries. Now, the good news is in each of the countries, we have local leaders that are behind this. It is their foundation. They make it work. And they set the example. They work hard. They care. They're ethical. Mm. Now, they, they do the right things. 
everybody talks the region it's a region run by bribes well we we have none of that we've never had any of that mm-hmm. and um, you know there are things i worry about things i don't, I don't worry about that anymore you know we we obviously ordered everything we do we have certified financial statements for every affiliate and we've had difficulties on occasion but by and large it works people behave properly they care they're good people i feel very comfortable when i'm in the region i'm a runner i go running in ramallah I have no concerns about it. Mm-hmm. What's the biggest, Ron, what was, what's the biggest misconception uh, that maybe people who, like myself, aren't as informed about the Middle East uh, in terms of uh, starting a company in the Middle East and religious factors and cultural factors? What, what's the biggest misconception that maybe a, an entrepreneur might have about the Middle East? Well, they can be concerned that the hurdles are insurmountable. Mm-hmm. You know that the 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 difficulty of actually getting going makes it impossible. Mm. And quite frankly, in the first few years, it was almost impossible. We didn't have the credibility. We didn't have the focus. We didn't have the leadership. Now it's it's been a much easier place to be for us because we have local people on the ground, hundreds of them, that believe in our mission and that support it. Mm. Right. People of all religions. Well, Ron, uh, uh, I was just dressed up as Mark Twain for Halloween this weekend, and uh, one of my favorite quotes from him is, uh, just like you kind of just mentioned, the secret the secret to uh, getting ahead is getting started. Uh, and that seems like you're doing it, and Ron, that takes a lot of leadership. Uh, what would you say your definition of a real leader is? First of all, having the imagination to think out of the box. Second is to work with people that are smarter than you are and to treat them well. Third is to maintain your focus and not deviate when things get a little rocky. I think that's what makes a leader. Well, well said, Ron. And for people listening out there, appreciate you tuning in to this episode of the Realist Podcast with Ron Bruin, the founder and chairman of Education for Employment. And before we leave today, we want to make sure that you all are are working with people that are smarter than you and staying focused and uh, always, again, I'm going to put this phrase out there, be like education for employment. See a challenge, take it on, and the secret to getting ahead is getting started. Ron, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Pleasure is mine. Thank you for the time. For everyone out, for everyone out there, that's for, for Ron Bruton. I'm Kevin Edwards asking you all to keep it real. <laughs>